This is the Dennis Miller Option. Your source of opinions, stories, and laughs from comedian and inactivist Dennis Miller, his guy Friday Christian Blatt, and superstar producer Lindsay Floyd. And now, it's him, Dennis Miller. Hey folks, welcome to the, uh, the Dennis Miller Option. Christian, how are you? I am uh, I'm doing uh, better on other days than I am today, but uh, I will, uh, I'll hang in there for you, boss. What, you got a little diaper rash, or what are you? What happened? Uh, no, my kids are home. Uh, today is a, a day that their their respective schools are calling anything other than uh, Columbus Day. So uh, I'm uh, I've got I've got a lot of plates in the air. So your healthy children are home, and you're devastated. Nice to know, Lindsay. How are <laughs> yeah. you? I'm I just great. saw them all weekend. What? What? Three days? Come on. Yeah, we can't. Call, I call it Richard Benjamin Day, since I believe he was the star of Goodbye Columbus. And uh, I used to live on Columbus Avenue in New York, or right next to it. And uh, I don't know, the, the uh, market plunged there when they renamed it uh, Native American Exploiter uh, Avenue. And uh, yeah, it doesn't have the same panache. No. First time I took my bride out with a friend for a, a cocktail is at the Columbus Cafe, one of the great all-time New York haunts uh, up there with Elaine's and uh, P.J. Clark's. And uh, I don't know what the downtown scene was, Christian. You were down, um, didn't you, weren't you a bun boy at some place out near the pier called Rage or something? You had told me <laughs> that you had to skate out with drinks and a cock sock. do i remember this correctly or is this a yeah that was that was in the evenings uh but uh during the daytime i usually worked at uh cafe wa and here's the weird thing during the day christian worked at a factory in jersey that made those skid knobs on the front of skates that allowed you to slow down and if that isn't a if that isn't a tess working girl scenario where she crosses christian would cross the bridge and uh, during his days, working with his hands on the slowdown knob for the skates out in Jersey. I think it was up near Teterboro. And then coming across and downtown and then going to work in a, a tiny LeMay thong on skates, <laughs> delivering Harvey Wallbangers to fashion consultants. And, uh, that's kind of, I, I think there's an arc there. That's just me. Tell that to Hollywood, who won't buy that story. <laughs> uh, believe me, we're reinvigorating that. I'm, I've got an active pitch on that. <laughs> we're going to call it a bridge too far, and we're going to go in and pitch the living hell out of it. But you've forgotten how to skate, haven't you? Or did you keep up your skating things? No, no, no. Ever since uh, I had that injury, it's uh, you know, I, I just can't put them back on. I remember when you were trying to learn how to skate backwards and your legs would splay out to the side and you would just <laughs> inch, inch like like the lost in space robot in a rainstorm. And then I said to Christian, what are you doing? He said, I'm trying to skate backwards. And I said, you look like you're Michael Jackson backing out of Father Joe's wrath or something. And, uh, <laughs> all right. I think we've got the show in the bag. Who's joining us so. today? Uh, it'll be uh, your you friend Scott Iman. Okay. No, no, your friend Scott Iman. He's he's talking Cary Grant. Oh, beautiful. Well, Scotty, the best uh, Hollywood book writer in the world. So we'll talk to him about uh, Cary Grant 
And um, I think I remember when Christian um, <laughs> shut up, Dennis. <laughs> Just shut up. Jesus, you nauseate me, Dennis Miller. Um, what time's he? And what do we do till then? He and will what's up be in with the us world? in about. He'll be with us in about five minutes. So, uh, so three can... three weeks till the election. I hear Biden's sixteen points up. So that looks like it's in the bag. I wonder what the new world will be like. Um, certainly, if uh, income tax go up crazily, I would encourage everybody not to work. I, I mean that. I know they're coming on and saying work is noble and all. I, I heard a Biden ad on the sports network yesterday, and they was talking about. Uh, it's not just about the paycheck. It's about the nobility you get from work. And I was thinking, <laughs> I, know, I don't know that they're stressing that. I, he might be stressing that for the purposes of the ad, but it seems to me yeah. that work is uh, not exactly a, uh, I don't know, the Speaker of the House talking about if you don't take the job, learn poetry, learn an instrument. Bernie Sanders pr pretty much, I think, would be the Secretary of Commerce or something. Uh, Biden has... Uh, talked a, a lot about uh, the uh, the need for social justice and spreading the wealth and all that. And I don't know that I, I would say to anybody out there making less than 60 grand, if, uh, well, I assume the polls are true, so I'm not even going to say when Biden wins in 21 days and you're making 45 to $50,000, um, if you're making $60,000 or less working one or two jobs, and even your gig job they're trying to eat into uh, and tax and unionize and all that stuff, uh, quit. You know, uh, it's, Take the 45 that you can get from the uh, new economy and uh, quit. Everybody quit. And we'll see where that goes. Uh, I, I don't think the Republicans, when they lose in 21 days, are ever coming back around again because, as I've said, it's pretty obvious that they'll do away with the filibuster and, uh, you know, Biden's reticence to not reticence. Uh, he's now even made it a, uh, um, an insult to ask him. What do you mean? People don't deserve. Can you imagine this man's up 16 points in this country looking right at America in the eye and saying, you don't deserve to know if I'll pack the court or not. Boy, you talk about people just lemming off the cliff. Nobody gets mad. Oh, what is that? 16 points is 58.42. So the 58% of the people were going to put Biden in office three weeks hence. He looked them right in the eye when they said, will you pack the court? And he said, you don't deserve it. I mean, there was a million ways he could put that. And I saw the man who was, he looked local. He kind of nodded. Out. He got it. It's like when I watched The Vow, this weird show on Sunday nights on <laughs> HBO where the guy stands up there and he talks about how women are horrible and hated and there's a group full of women in front of him and they're nodding. And I, I guess it's some sort of, what do they call that, the Norm, uh, not Nuremberg defense, the Helsinki effect? Or is there something? Uh, Stockholm syndrome. Stockholm syndrome. It's akin to that because uh, people just nod and they're going to go with it. And... Uh, uh, those two, obviously, the uh, District of Columbia and Puerto Rico will immediately become states or sometime in the first year. And, you know, McConnell never took anything up on a filibuster, but they will in a shot. And uh, there's no way to come back from that. It will birth a little pulsar of a third party. 
that'll eventually become the second party as the uh, Republicans go the way of the uh, toupees or whatever they were called. And uh, it'll just be two liberal parties, one like trying to hang on and be vaguely liberal and the other one just being flat uh, socialist communist party. So that's what we got coming. Well, I'm uh, I'm going to try and bring back the bull moose party, and uh, I hope that uh, that you know you'll join us as a, as a bull moose because uh, I don't even know what they stood for. I just always liked the name. Well, listen, I'm into inclusivity, so I'm re- renaming it the bull moose and squirrel party because I think that if we all come together, different uh, flying squirrels and moose. I remember the old <laughs> days when a flying squirrel would simply use. Of moose's antlers to land on so he could shit. Now, <laughs> to think that they've entered into a quasi-detective firm together, I think it shows you the steps we've made. But somewhere just... down the road, I'm looking for... I, I know, Scott will hang in there for a second. but <laughs> No, I think he's hanging on every word. <laughs> I won't accept this movement fully until uh, Bullwinkle transitions into a flying squirrel. Then I'll know that all is at peace with the world. It's coming. Is Scott with us? He is indeed. Ah, the best writer of Hollywood, uh, classic Hollywood books. I don't even know if Scott, I don't even know if I'd like to see Scott take on something like a Peter Biskin modern day book, or maybe he'll tell me he has, but I, I, it's so mechanical and all these, uh, uh, cartoon films that exist now. I like Scotty in his sweet spot, which is chronicling films when, when it was truly great, when it was magic of kingdom. He is the best writer by classic Hollywood in the world. Scott Iman, his latest book is Cary Grant, A Brilliant Disguise. I'm on that lucky list where I get a galley of these a few months out. I devour it in the weekend. And it's available now for pre-order, and it will be released next Tuesday, October 20th. I encourage you to queue up. Everybody who's ever worked for Trump, against Trump, for Trump, everybody's written a book. The entire bestseller lists are populated by it. Go back, get this book, unwind, and remember a time of yore when it a little bit more magical. Scott, how are you? I'm good, Dennis. How about you? Beautiful. What a hookup you have, man. You must be doing a lot of interviews because you have, uh, I feel like I'm, uh, you know, up on Apollo 13 talking to you know, Houston Control. This is so. <laughs> you, you remind me of young Chris Kraft. I think I've often told you that, but. Uh, <laughs> I love it. What was the guy with the Mercury astronauts? Shorty Rogers? Was it Sh- not Shorty Rogers. He was a jazz musician. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, no. It was Miguelito Loveless was in charge of the, <laughs> the Mercury program, if I'm not mistaken. Before we dive into uh, the man himself, um, so many books been written about Cary Grant, I don't, and a lot of them surfacey because uh, there's a surface sheen about Cary Grant. You took a deep dive here as I read it, and I was wondering what opened up as far as Public Information Act or something that you had access to some really extensive archival research. Well, they're still writing books about the Civil War, and there's new mm-hmm. stuff, you know, because things turn up. You know, the uh, the archival dig is not uh, is almost infinite. It's just you have to have a certain amount of uh, savvy about where something might be. Uh, it's not just what you need to know. It's now who would who would where would this be? Where can I find this out? Mm-hmm. And 
stuff is some of the stuff is lying in plain sight, you know, which means it's probably been uh, gone over. But there was a lot of stuff out there that wasn't lying in plain sight. The Schubert archives, for instance, you know, where where Archie Leach was under contract in the late mm. 1920s as, as a musical comedy performer, you know, for the Schuberts in New York. They had some really interesting correspondence from from Archie to Ar- and to Archie. So stuff like that is is a godsend. You just have to kind of be able to sniff it out like uh, truffles. <laughs> I went on a truffle hunt in Italy. It was the most fun, but I think I was being gamed because the guy would pick up uh, a thing that was like a, he'd say, oh, look at this down at the root of this banyan tree. And I'd go over and there'd be a, a, a an eraser from a number two lead pencil. And he'd say, that's a truffle. <laughs> Like a really, I felt I felt like Bogey and uh, Tim Holt misidentifying gold or something in Treasure of the Sierra Madre. That doesn't end well, Bogey and Tim Holt. <laughs> he starts as uh, well the Schubert organization. Uh, I think he's probably changed his name at that point. Even uh, no, no. Was was he only was he only Archibald Leach as a tumbler? Or tell tell me when he changed. He was Archie Leach until he landed in Hollywood. He was Archie Leach as, a, as an acrobat. He was Archie Leach in vaudeville, American vaudeville. And he was Archie Leach uh, on Broadway. And he only became Cary Grant when he got signed by Paramount in 1932 and went to Hollywood. Wow. Archie Leach, it's it's so funny. Could you think of a name more antithetical to that uh, visage? You, you know what I mean? It's it's so incongruous oh. to me. It's a, it's the name of a character Norman Wisdom would play in a 1952 English <laughs> And here it is. It's it's some sort of uh, at least face wise some some god visited from above, and he's Archie. It's unbelievable. Um, totally incongruous. And he knew it too. He worked Archie Leach as an in joke into you know several movies. You know it it amused him as well as uh, as well as the people that knew him. But he always made it. He was almost a fetish. He wanted because he wanted people to know that he wasn't actually Cary Grant. So he would send up these kind of like uh, uh, flares uh, to alert them that he was in on the joke, too, that he was actually way down deep Archie Leach. Well, I knew that later on, obviously, as the direct quote, people want to be Cary Grant, so do I. So that that stayed with him. That bookended his career. How important, you know, when I look back on Grant, sometimes where people are uh, the where they're birthed showbiz wise becomes so important. I think of him as so regal in his carriage and so deft and nimble. And even when he pushes Catherine uh, Hepburn down at the beginning of Philadelphia's story, just the, the body language, I, I, I think his acrobatic skills played an incredible part in his success. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Because it gave him a confidence in his body, which a lot of actors don't have because they don't go through that that matriculation process of learning what your body can do and working with other acrobats. Uh, but when you think about actors who have that skill, like Charlie Chaplin or Burt Lancaster, who was also an acrobat, that physicality mm-hmm. uh, comes through in everything they do, even if it doesn't. The part doesn't necessarily call for physicality because that physic that that knowledge of what they can do with their bodies informs every action they take in front of a camera, even if it doesn't involve somersaults and things like that, because they have confidence in their body. Um, he comes from a haunted past, father an alcoholic, and well, you tell the story of his mother. It's it's akin to Chaplin, isn't it? It's, it's so ironic. Very much so. His mother was institutionalized when he was 11. Uh, his father gave him the general impression that his mother had gone to the sea, and then mm-hmm. that she had died. 
And so he, he didn't really, uh, he assumed that his father was more or less telling him the truth. So he assumed his mother had died without ever having any kind of farewell or goodbye. His father was an alcoholic pants presser with a separate family, uh, a, a woman with whom he had, who was not married to, but with whom we had a child. Uh, he found out his mother was alive when his father died uh, in 1935, Jesus. after she'd been institutionalized for 24 years. Uh, so you can imagine what a thunderbolt that was for the psyche. Uh, he got her out of the institution. He set her up in a house in Bristol, her hometown, his hometown, and supported her for the rest of, the, of his life and or her life and would go over to see her once a year. Uh, and but he, it was the bane of his life. It was this, this black mm -hmm. cloud over him for his entire life because she was compromised emotionally in some primary way. Basically, I talked to a friend of, 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 of Carrie's who was with him three times in the house with her. And he said she would sit there and he would try to make conversation and the ball would not come back over the net. She would, she simply didn't really engage with him on any kind of emotional level or anybody else for that matter. Uh, so he, he spent his life trying to provoke, to trying to get an acknowledgement of who he'd become, you know, and who he was. He could be, but all of his letters to her are signed Archie, not Carrie. He never tried to get her to accept, you know, the fact that he was Carrie Grant. She would see him in the movies, but she always addressed him as Archie and all his letters are signed Archie. So there was this weird uh, uh, double track existence that he had on the one hand uh, he's Cary Grant to the world at large on the other hand to his mother and I suspect also to himself he was still Archie Leach as as uh, Nietzsche said once man is a rope stretched over the abyss on one side Ubermensch on the other side every man the rope was frayed <laughs> there you go indeed what was the uh so his, I know this is, I know this from the book, but I want the folks to know at no time during his mother's being instituted, did she know that her son was the biggest star in the world, right? No, no, there was no, uh, I don't see how she would. Now it was not bedlam. She was, it was not a, uh, uh, you know, a crazy, uh, a crazy mm -hmm. house for, right. for emotionally disturbed people. Uh, she did write to him the first letter that survives, which she wrote to him, care of Paramount Pictures, uh, is, 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 uh, but she knew enough to write him care of Paramount Pictures because he'd already made contact with her, you know, mm -hmm. uh, and he obviously given her an address, but he didn't give her his home address, which I think is interesting. Wow. <laughs> Do you think Grant spent the rest of his life in a, maybe a more charming, genial manner? Cause one has to put on a face when one's at the top of the show, but is he not returning the ball over the net to humanity at large? Do you think this, uh, echoed itself in his, uh, his life? I think he was a lone wolf from an early age because I think that was the only way he could survive given uh, the upbringing he had. Uh, there was very little money. He never had to worry about his next meal. He wasn't poor in the sense that Chaplin was poor, indigent. He was not indigent, but there was no money. And his father was basically absent when he was an alcohol and drunk, drunk. His mother was, as far as he knew, dead. And he, he, he kept this diary when he was 14 for about five or six months until he got bored with it and, and stopped doing it. And it's fascinating because it shows clearly that he's 
already a lone wolf. He, he's cutting class all the time. He's not really going to school very much at all. And what he is doing is going to the movies and going to the music hall to see the variety acts that he loves. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and occasionally he just writes roaming, you know? <laughs> uh, so what he's doing basically is not following through on what society expects of a 14-year-old kid or what his father on those moments when he was sober would expect of his 14-year-old son. He's doing what he wants to do. Uh, and he's a street kid. He's absolutely a street kid. Now, the, the thing of it is, when he went to school, he was a good student. His grades actually were generally in the high 80s and low 90s. Mm-hmm. So he did just fine uh, as a student. When he showed up, he simply chose not to show up. And that same year when he was 14, he gets himself kicked out of school because he wanted out. Uh, and he got himself apprenticed to an acrobatic troupe, which is what he really wanted to do, was to be in the theater, to be in show business, to be in the music hall, to get out of mm-hmm. Bristol. Ironically, I assume roaming charges were pretty high back then, too. <laughs> Anytime a 14-year-old fills his diary page out with roaming, the mischief is afoot, let's just yep. say. Whether you're an athlete, weekend warrior, or someone who deals with constant joint pain, back pain, muscle soreness, or arthritis, finding a natural remedy that instantly works might seem, well, non-existent. Most over-the-counter pain relievers, such as Icy Hot and Ben Gay, only focus on one basic cooling effect, such as menthol, which temporarily takes your mind off the pain until that pain returns in an hour or so. If you're looking to get rid of nagging muscle and joint pain immediately while providing long-lasting recovery, then you need to try the natural breakthrough pain relief solution, CryoFreeze CBD developed by Omax Health. CryoFreeze is an advanced pain relief product line that was inspired by cryotherapy, which means cold therapy. The treatment exposes the body to cold temperatures in order to numb and reduce pain or inflammation. Professional athletes such as PGA Pro Kyle Stanley use this type of cryotherapy on a regular basis. This non-prescription, triple-action pain relief roll-on is specially formulated to block pain receptors, reduce inflammation, and improve muscle and joint flexibility. The best part is that it's 100% natural. CBD-powered remedy works its magic within 10 minutes of application, and relief lasts up to 8 hours, much longer than over-the-counter products. It's super easy to throw in your gym bag and take on the go for emergency relief pain. Simply roll it over where it hurts and ice out the pain with an arctic blast. So if you're looking to relieve your muscle and joint pain within 15 minutes and need a natural yet powerful solution that is tested and works, try CryoFreeze Pain Relief Roll-On. This quick-absorbing, scientifically-backed formula provides pain relief instantly. And if pro athletes use it, well, it must work. Remember, go to omaxhealth.com today and enter code MILLER to take advantage of this incredible savings. That's omaxhealth.com and enter code MILLER to get 20% off cryofreeze, anything else site-wide. Don't let muscle soreness continue to be an excuse for living an inactive lifestyle. Go to omaxhealth.com and feel relief faster. Let's uh, let's talk about he and Chaplin. Did they ever bond over their loners status, <laughs> or did, were they friends? Did they know each other? Well, they were acquaintances. They were they were both 
they were both loners. But I'll tell you one thing, when Chaplin got kicked out of the country, when they rescinded his reentry permit, mm -hmm. two people in Hollywood stood up for him. Two, Sam Goldwyn and Cary Grant. Grant mm. uh, publicly said that A, he's not a communist, and B, he's not a threat to the Republic, and they should let him back in immediately. Uh, everybody else shut up. Nobody else would come to his defense except Goldwyn and, and Cary Grant. But that was typical of Grant. As I said, he was essentially a lone wolf. And the same thing when Ingrid Bourbon got in trouble uh, mm -hmm. and got in trouble with her affair with Rossellini and had twins out of wedlock. And she was being castigated on the floor of the United States, yes. you know, and nobody would hire her. Uh, Grant stood up for her and said she had uh, she had nothing to, to to apologize for, that she was a brave woman and a good woman and uh, 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 she should be left the hell alone. So he, he was not afraid to take uh, an unpopular social stand. We're talking to Scott Iman. As I said, he is without a doubt. Folks, I read them all because Hollywood bios, Hollywood histories, for some reason, fascinate me. Although I've not really been a creature of Hollywood, I've always maintained fan status. I am always looking up at that time through the uh, flickering lights on my face or on my glasses and nobody nobody inhabits that era it's like the usher who seats me in that theater scott iman the latest book is Cary grant a brilliant disguise it's available now for pre-order it will be released next tuesday october 20th and out of scott's entire over and i've read them all i would start with the uh, uh and he he might differ on this there's a silent picture book that i got to later that's amazing but i i started with the louis b mayer book and boy i'm talking you talk about a template for understanding the Hollywood is called Lion of Hollywood, the life and legend of Louis B. Mayer. And I, I, that, that would be a good point of departure if you want to dive into all things Iman. Did Grant, he seemed, um, well, distant in a lot of ways. Did he know how, like I said, he kept, he almost balkanized the Cary Grant character, but he knew how intoxicating that character was, didn't he? Yeah, I think he understood its impact. And he understood how to flip a switch to become Cary Grant. But the core, I think his core problem was, is that he felt he was an imposter because he was, he didn't really feel that he was that person. I mean, you, you know, the world of standup, I'm sure there would have to be some standup comedians whose stage persona is not who they really are as people. No, but with some people, it's more extreme than others, you know? Uh, the only other actor I can think of from the, the period we're talking about who had similar dichotomy between who he actually was and what he played was Spencer Tracy, who played mm -hmm. these rock solid phlegmatic men of the people, man of the people thing. Mm -hmm. And he was a very nervous alcoholic as a person, you know, and, and tormented in very primary ways. Uh, Grant didn't have a drinking problem, but he, I, he always felt something of an imposter because mm -hmm. Cary Grant was a construct that he put together over six, seven years of incrementally. You know, it wasn't just light, a lightning bolt. It was a piece here and a piece there. And he discovered the public liked it. So he expanded on certain aspects and diminished other aspects. But it was a construct. And it was a part he played. But that it was, it was an authentic projection of who he wanted to be, not what he was. And, and that caused him a lot of stress in this in the classic cinderella sense of it's sooner or later the clock's going to strike 12 and the and the carriage becomes a pumpkin Jesus. and you're back to being archie leach what i think enabled him to really relax and become the person he was was to quit show business 
He made all the money he could spend times five and walked away at the age of 62. And that's something, as you know, performers don't quit. They're just not hired anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you, there's, there are actors that are still available at the age of 90 and they wonder why the phone doesn't ring. And he, he, mm-hmm. he had no desire to go back to movies because uh, it was a stressful occupation for him. It was not easy. That was part of the performance. His great performance was as Cary Grant. That was a towering performance. Imagine the irony of uh, Walk, Don't Run being the film that causes you to walk away. I think he just looked up and said, I can only chisel into the edifice here the more well, I appear. Well, you know, at that point, it's the mid it's 1966. Uh, Hitchcock's in decline. Leo McCary's retired and his health is bad. And he was, he was, he was going to die in a few years. All the Hawks is in decline. All the directors that had made him that he worked with so happily and that it helped him construct the persona were either dead or, or basically uh, unemployed or unemployable. Uh, and this, and the, he was having trouble finding other people to work with that could do what Hitchcock could do, that could do what McCary or Hawks could do. Uh, he had Stanley Donnan. They made uh, a, a couple of very good pictures together, I particularly like Indiscreet, mm-hmm. a picture made in 1958 with Ingrid Bergman. Uh, but Donnan was off on his own thing, you know, uh, and, and didn't get along with Blake Edwards at all. So, and Blake Edwards is a wonderful comedy director. So, uh, there weren't a lot of people that he really felt, uh, 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 comfortable with to work at that point. And there was also the fact that he had made the money he felt he needed to make for his internal sense of security. So he right. walked and, and quit, uh, at, you know, at, when he was still eminently employable and still had his looks. Uh, and he walked away, and he—I don't think he ever regretted it. By the way, the walk through windows in Ingrid Bergman's apartment in uh, London, in indiscreet, one of my favorite design techniques in a film oh, ever. Okay. Like, I just love the idea that you took one step up, you were through a huge picture window out onto the deck, and uh-huh. then she had all those picture frames on the wall. It's—it's it's true. That and charade, folks, I think is the other one he's talking about with the all-time great Audrey Hepburn line. You know what's wrong with you? Nothing. Boy, that's that sums it up right there as far as being a movie star. What's with the uh, LSD? Let's talk about that. I think he was always on a search, and I guess it's one point he tripped around 125 times, right, Carrie? He became Captain Trips in Hollywood. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> he, well, he, tried, he tried psychotherapy, and he didn't like it. I think he felt it was invasive, and it took forever. Uh, and he was looking for something, you know, and he, he had, at one time in his youth, when he was in his music hall and uh, uh, theater period, he'd been a heavy drinker. Uh, but I think he was, he got off that because he realized he was in danger of becoming his father. So he basically, he stopped drinking or a glass of wine at dinner, but nothing extreme. And he was looking for something to unify these warring personalities he had, Archie and Carrie. So he, and in that period, and we're talking the mid to late fifties a lot of people were doing acid because it wasn't a controlled substance. It was basically, you could go to a doctor's office who did it and you could get some acid. Uh, so you had the Aldous Huxley Holly, Hollywood crowd, mm-hmm. the upscale intellectuals who saw it as a way to you know, uh, expand their literary and cultural horizons. And then you had people that were really using it as a, uh, a placebo for psycho, psychotherapy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's essentially what he used it at. And for him, it seemed to work. He he would he would talk about it uh, incessantly. 
uh, whether you wanted to hear about it or not. That was part of the process in the same way that people who are going through therapy often talk about it incessantly, whether you want to talk to hear about it or not. Mm -hmm. That was the first time he was ever referred to as acid-tongued by his peers. Up until that point, thought to be a pretty, a relatively genial bloke, if a bit distance. I, I think, uh, I think he. Well, I'm a, such a huge Diane Cannon fan that I can see her charms in many ways. But I think at that point he wants a baby. Do you notice linkage between the first four wives? Maybe she's an anomalous one, but any any sort of uh, through line in the first four wives? No, there's no commonality between his wives. They're all completely different. Hmm. He married. Uh, his first wife is Virginia Churrell, the uh, leading lady of Chaplin City Lights, who wasn't an actress. Mm-hmm. Uh, she wasn't a trained actress. She happened to luck out, and Chaplin directed her beat by beat in the performance. But she she was very beautiful. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, that didn't work out. That lasted like a year. His second wife was Barbara Hutton, the richest woman in the world. Mm-hmm. Totally different. Uh, his third wife is Betsy Drake, a young actress he saw in London and and uh, took to Hollywood and wanted to make her into a, into a star. He had a heavy uh, relationship with Sophia Loren while he was married to Betsy Drake. Uh, and then came Diane Cannon, a young actress. Uh, and then his last wife, uh, uh, Barbara, was a uh, uh, worked at a luxury hotel in London, buying, getting theater tickets for people and taking care of their uh, uh, dinner reservations, which actually turned out to be a great prerequisite for a successful marriage with Cary Grant because he did not want <laughs> He did not want anybody who was an actress like Charlie Chaplin with Una, like Henry Fonda with Shirley. He was a difficult man who wanted a woman to basically say, yes, dear, and take care of (laughs) whether they were emotional or physical and take care of dinner and decorate the house and run the house. And, and, and he could make an entrance and then make his exit without a lot of worries about what are we having for dinner? And do you think we should go with the green shades or the, or the pale uh, tan shades? You know, he didn't, you go. he wasn't interested in all that. He wanted someone basically to be a, a, a major domo for him right. with special benefits on the side, which is what he finally ended up with. Can you imagine Mike, Rom- uh, Mike at Romanoff's pulling out a DEA drug ram to hoist a tourist out of a good table when Cary Grant walked in unannounced? <laughs> I'm just, I'm just, you talk about the invention of the word shunted. I think it happened. I think it happened right there. It can be a little frustrating, especially if you're in a hurry or running late to find yourself at a railway crossing waiting for a train. And if the signals are going and the train's not even there yet, you may feel a little tempted to try and sneak across the tracks. Come on. Don't. Ever. To the naked eye, trains often appear to be further away and moving slower than they are. And they can't stop quickly, obviously. Even if the engineer hits the emergency brakes right away, it can take a train over a mile to stop. Over a mile to stop. By that time, it's too late. Then the result is potentially deadly crash. Very, very, very potentially The point is, you can't know how quickly the train will arrive. The train can't stop quickly, even if it sees you, it ends in disaster. If the signals are on, the train is on its way, and you just need to remember one thing. Stop. Trains can't. 
We're talking to Scott Iman, uh, my favorite Hollywood author. Folks, I can't encourage you more. It's a delight. And, you know, if we're going to be in this COVID thing, who knows how long. And I wish I'd gotten this guy, but the book's coming out uh, next Tuesday. It's uh, uh, So this is why we want to do it, because we want to uh, sell the soap. But uh, it, this would have been a great way. I'm telling you, there must be, how many are there now, Scott? 15 to 17 or something? Or? But, you know, I don't recommend it for everybody. It's a lot oh. of work. <laughs> Well, not writing them, but reading them, it is a, uh, it, it's, it's my favorite reading experience. Carrie Grant, well, you and, you and Woodhouse, I have to put you up there with PG. So, uh, the, 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 I'll take that any day. I love <laughs> Me too. I'm trying to read all the books every time I turn around. He's writing more as he's dead, I think, at this <laughs> point. Every time I finish one or finish one on audiobook, I'll think, well, I must be making a dent in this list. I'm at like 45. And I go, oh. So I'm halfway now. Thank you very much. Um, also, uh, Scott has a, a great relationship with RJ, and uh, they have or Robert Wang. I'm so so. Uh, everybody calls him RJ. I don't. I'm not pretending to know him more than I do, folks. But I've met him a few times, and it gives you that Al Monday smile, and you just you laugh your ass off. He's uh, an erudite guy who bridged uh, from Spencer Tracy going up the mountain to being on tv with uh you know doing his uh tv show he really does bridge the gap between the two worlds and the books are you must remember this pieces of my heart also i loved her in the movies memories of hollywood's legendary actresses and all three of these as i said were co-written with rj how is mr wagner doing he's doing just fine he celebrated the big 90 wow wow he was in la he was in la uh, a week ago now he's back in aspen he lives in aspen full-time well, if you're 90 and you can still jump back and forth between 8,200 feet and sea level, something's working in the cardiopulmonary system. Because I know people people don't go to Aspen anymore as they get older because they can't get their breath. So it sounds like he's in fine fettle. All right, Scotty, how's your bride? Life good down there? One of the weird times. I'm, uh, I watch the baseball now. And uh, I feel like I'm. Uh, I, it's so cleanly. It reminds me of... Uh, you know when uh, they shrink Edmund O'Brien shrinks down Donald Pleasance in that movie to fantastic <laughs> to inject them into the bloodstream. Yeah. Stephen Boyd, by the way, what? No, let me just ask you in closing an off off brand question. Okay. How how does you Griffiths win an Oscar for Ben Hur as best supporting actor? And uh, Stephen Boyd is not he's so great now. How is he not even nominated? Did he did they hate him in Hollywood? No, they didn't hate him in Hollywood, but that was his big break. And it was his first time at bat, really, in the big leagues. And he hit a home run. And you don't give a guy an MVP for hitting a home run in his first big shot. And, it, right. you know, it was uh, – and Hugh Griffith is – it's a show-stopping performance. You know, he's he's arching his eyebrows and he's licking his lips. And, I mean, it's like a Peter Ustinoff performance. It's a scene-stealing performance. Uh, yes, and the you're director, right. director looked at the Russians and said, okay, it, it livens things up. <laughs> And let him go with it. So it's the right. kind of performance that gets noticed. And whereas Boyd is at, is 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 not out of the movie, he's in the movie and he's in the part. Whereas okay. Griffith is acting partially uh, towards Charlton Heston and partially towards the audience. And that's the kind of performance that often gets gets uh, uh, Oscar recognition. So you you Griffith has essentially been put on the black velvet jeweler's cloth, and the loop is <laughs> on him, and. Uh, he, he does stand. You, you know, nothing makes me laugh harder than Ustinov supplicating to Olivia and Spartacus, or oh. well, the way 
the way he, he backs her up, sucks up. It's like Joey Bishop with Frank, for God's sake. <laughs> but you now specialized in those performances, you know, uh, Nero and Quo Vadis and uh, mm-hmm. uh, uh, Hercule Poirot. I mean, those are all really theatrical, arched eyebrow performances. The Egyptian, uh, God, he's, I'm so glad he's in the Egyptian because he's the only amusement to be had in the picture. Uh, no, in the right picture. And, but Spartacus is like an act, is like the Englishmen are putting on an acting clinic for the, all the Americans. I, I see that as like championship bowling on a very high level. Yeah. <laughs> Earl Anthony coming in from the far left board. Exactly. Uh, by the way, uh, so you're gl- you're completely glossing over young Joan Collins in the Egyptian. No, no, no. She's in the Land of the Pharaohs. Oh, Land of the Pharaohs. Sorry, I got the two of them confused. Oh, nobody in it. Jack Hawkins is Pharaoh, and and Joan Collins is the girl. All right, that's right. So my bad. That's why I have Scotty in my life. I need somebody to wingman me here. The website is Scott Iman two T's E Y M A N dot com. And on Twitter, at Scott Iman one the number. The new book is Cary Grant, A Brilliant Disguise, available now for pre-order. And it will be released next Tuesday, October 20th. As I said, the absolute best at what he does on the planet Earth. Thanks for your time, Scotty. Thank you, Dennis. Take care of yourself. Later, Gator. So you had that movie room. <sighs> Christian, that's I feel all like, you can take uh, away as from far the last as old movies hour. go. That's a How 9000 moment for me. <laughs> Wait a second. That part was good? No, I'm going to be fucked up all day. You mean How, the computer from Space 1999, right? No, no. Shallow How, Jack Blanks. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Same difference. All right. Well, um, that was pretty good, wasn't it? That's great. I love listening to you guys talk talk hollywood i couldn't find words a couple times because i took an ambient at 504 oh all right <laughs> it's two weeks in a row we've done that yeah. how, how do you feel that that prepares you for the pod that's your new podcast ritual haven't you ever gotten a rut where you wake up and you have a digital clock and you look over and it's the same time yeah and you're thinking wait i know we have a body clock but really mine's set to jack webb episode of dragnet time <laughs> 504. I fell out of REM. I went into the bathroom to take a pee. <laughs> I take a quarter, 1.125 of an ambient. Don't act like I'm, you know, Lenny face down on a bathroom floor here. You okay? I am. <laughs> it was just an interesting image. Um, no, no, I meant Christian. What do you. Oh, I'm fine. Would you. Huh? Well, don't leave me hanging like that. You know, I'm afraid without you. Look, people only really tune in to hear Lindsay laugh. Listen, you're on the vine. I'm Johnny Sheffield on your chest. And we're swinging through the canyon in Tarzan movies. But uh, don't uh, don't go away because I can't handle the vine on my own. Thanks for the vine, Romy. <laughs> that used to make me laugh. So I know. <laughs> All right. Um, what are we doing? We, do we got our time or I've got something to do today. Don't let me ramble like I did last time because nope. I've got to do something again this week. Take an ambient. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> got to take the rest of it. Uh, I wanted to uh, get a couple voicemails in and I wanted to keep it on Hollywood. So we'll go with voicemail number two, Luke from Minnesota. Dennis, enjoying the show immensely. 
I don't know if you mentioned uh, the passing of Diana Rigg on your show. I don't believe that you have. Uh, I know that you're a James Bond fan, as am I. Uh, just wondering what you thought about Honor Majesty's Secret Service, maybe when you saw it back in the day, uh, compared to how, maybe how it holds up now and maybe how it's getting maybe this recognition that it deserves. Enjoying the show. Take care. Thanks. Well, let me take a gulp of this water. Sorry, Christian. I thought it was a longer question. I took a bite of Nutrigrain because I was getting hypoglycemic. Take it for a second. Well, if you would like to leave us a voicemail, you know you can always do that at 866-509-RANT. That's 866-509-7268. And that is how these voicemails have come to us. You have to get by Lindsay. So if we don't play it, it's not because I didn't want to. Sorry about that. I was feeling a little dizzy from... um because I hadn't had anything to eat this morning, so I took a bite of, uh, let me see the exact brand here, uh, Cary Grant Nutri... Hey, wait a second. Look at that cactus with a space gun. Look, we all know you always fold under questioning about George Lazenby, and this is no different. You just can't handle the heat. <laughs> no, I was doing a Cary Grant to put acid in my Nutri-Grain pit. <laughs> Imagine tripping with Cary Grant. <laughs> over there, you know, PCP out of your mind. You've got a melon scooper you're taking your eyeballs out, and he's tying his ass up, which at that point is plain. But you see is a wacky violet paisley color. <laughs> one ascot makes you happy, and <laughs> one makes you small. And the ones that... Christian gives me don't do anything it all go as Lindsay. <laughs> um Diana Rigg, um great in that movie. Christ, when she's got that bolero hat on at her old man's mini rodeo or equestrian event, whatever the hell that is. Uh, ladies and me, I like the opening inside joke. I did not see the movie way back when I was out on a kid ledge. Sean Connery had stepped on, quite frankly. So I can't say I watched it then. I was probably in a snit. But I've seen it since. I enjoy it. Very sad at the end. Very touching when she gets uh, off on the road. And uh, I'm always blown away that Lazen, they wanted Lazenby, I believe, for a second one. And he passed. He, he said it was going to pigeonhole him. And then he entered, I think, with two Jamaican guys into the four-man bobsled competition with McLean Stevenson after he blew Mash out. So um, there's that. But uh, pretty good. And uh, Look, if you read the pilot for Hello, Larry, you would have walked too, okay? <laughs> Hello, Larry. <laughs> I remember for a while there, David Brenner was always pissed off that they hadn't picked up his pilot for Snip. <laughs> Snip. There was a two-year period there where I'd I'd see David and go, "How are you?" Said, they should have picked up Snip. It was some hairdresser <laughs> thing. Can't you oh, see him course. playing a bitchy Snip. hairdresser? Uh, and yes. uh, he, he was irate that Snip hadn't been picked up. And uh, <laughs> hello, Larry had a little bit of a life cycle, didn't it? A chrysalis one, wasn't it? On for a few minutes. Indeed, I, I, I'm not saying it, uh, you know, lasted like a uh, a tortoise in the Galapagos, but I think it had a bit of a chrysalis life. Well, I mean, it wasn't MASH, but it wasn't after MASH either, you know, it sort of split the mm -hmm. difference between the two. It, it aired for a year. Yeah, I think they made a mistake by having Hello Larry's male lover be Father Mulcahy. It was just too much of a a time jump for me. 
Well, you decide. Is 38 episodes a success or not? Yeah. Sure. Yeah. I think that's, you could do worse. Let me see. At that point, McLean's coming off MASH. At that era, 38 profit participation. That kicks in at 75 to 80. And syndication wasn't quite the thing it was now, so he didn't see back end on that. But I bet you got a tasty, tasty per week. I'd say first year, uh, 200. Coming off match, and they thought they had a big play there. And then second year, once he got the pickup uh, for 16, I'd say 300. So 200 at uh, 22 is 4,400,000. And then 16 at 3 is 4,8. I bet you he walks out of there with somewhere between 8 and 10 million. At that point, spendable money. Trust me, you could pick a hospital. You didn't have to go to a tent out in a mud pit. All right, that's my take on that. <laughs> uh, let's get one more voicemail in before we call it a day. Uh, what was the MASH unit's number before we go, please? 4077. All right, good. I just wanted to see if I was in with a player. That's oh, one of my on. things, whether I ever talk to a person again early on. <laughs> As a matter of fact, that should be the question at our southern border. Because <laughs> we're letting people mash the number of the mash unit. 4077, you're in. Here's your license. Here's your education. They don't have that together. Now, here's the quandary. What if they say 4077 in Spanish? Ooh. Half benefits or full? Uh, I think half. I think that's, you know, it's a good partial credit. They showed their hater, work. Hater! 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 <laughs> uh, what else we got? Uh, voicemail number three, Matt in Cincy. Uh, you mentioned George Stevens recently, and it reminded me that I wanted to thank you for recommending Five Came Back, the documentary series on Netflix. Really compelling stuff. And, and the Monty Python series you talked about, that was a good one. You also talked about uh, Chief Wahoo and the Cleveland Indians. Um, and wondered if they still had Chief Wahoo around. He did come off the uniforms in the field a couple of years ago. They still have him um, on some merchandise, though. But I'm in Cincinnati, where we have a pointless but bitter hatred of Cleveland. So, you know, screw them. And uh, put Pete in the hall. Lastly, I hope you do that debate thing with Schlichter and O'Connor. It will for sure be better than the analysis on MSNBC, where there's more atonal screeching than a Shirley Booth orgasm. So love the podcast. You guys do my favorite Tuesday, Thursday show. Thank you, brother. No reason to denigrate Hazel. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. No, B. No, you know, when you do that, you, you denigrate Bunt Rock, Defoe, Blake. <laughs> Whitney Blake had sort of a Doris D Day heat about her. I know they were prim suits, but somewhere under there. I think Maury Wills had an affair with Doris Day, right? For his sake, I hope he did. <laughs> yeah, he did. Mm -hmm. And you thought Walt Alston had given them the green light. <laughs> what was the guy's question about? Uh, well, the, the thing he was talking about was, uh, I guess you had mentioned that you might do like an MST3K with Kurt Schlichter and Larry O'Connor uh, if there are any more debates. Oh, yeah. I, I think, I, you know, I think I've bailed out on that now because this one didn't happen and the last yeah. one will be. Uh, I'm taking the uh, powers that be's words that this is over. Uh, you know, I'm still going to vote, obviously, but I guess Biden has just uh, struck a chord 
with uh, Liberal America and sees what they want. 16-point lead seems tad insurmountable. So good luck to everybody. Figure out your uh, your next plan. What was that guy talking about earlier, though? Because it had jogged something. Can we play it again? And I'll bail out what, oh. Well, I, I, he mentioned the Five Came Back documentary. He talked right. about Monty Python, Chief Wahoo. and Oh, I wanted to recommend to him the George Stevens uh the actual documentary, George Stephen and American Filmmaker's Journey by His Son, which is stunning. Watch that, please. Next. Uh, he watched, uh, he said that Monty Python series, like as though he had never heard of it until you mentioned it. So uh, I like hearing that he watched uh, presumably all 45 episodes. No, no, it was a, it was a wrap up of uh, Monty Python. Oh. Uh, no, no, he obviously had watched uh, The Flying Circus and all that, but this was a great documentary about. Uh, the pythons and they all uh, participated save the deceased ones and even even one of them uh, had laid down some clips before he passed so yeah I, I think at that point only Graham Chapman had passed away I think the rest were all with us at that point mm-hmm. and uh, there was one more thing but I'm taking a valuable podcast time here <laughs> looking for it but he had jogged something and- do you want to talk about Chief Wahoo or Pete Rose possibly the same guy you decide. It was about Chief Wahoo, but now I'm blanking because I've got some governor check on that I know anything you say about Native Americans mm-hmm. uh, brutalizes them, and uh, I don't want to cause anybody to. Do TPs have ledges? I don't even know. But I, <laughs> I built I, one. <laughs> you did, Lindsay. I built a, a ledge on my TP just for the show. I'm ready to jump. I remember you called me and you said, "Do you uh, do you have an Allen wrench with fringe on it?" I said, "What in the fuck?" She stone asked, "I need an Allen wrench, one and three eighths, with some suede fringe on it, preferably a light brown, and an elk bone handle, please." Lady <laughs> <laughs> Lindsay, all grown up and jamming. That's beautiful, baby. You like that. Uh, you like that female bass player in the Wrecking Crew who always lays it down. <laughs> Good for you, uh, Christian. What do we got? Would you like one more voicemail? Yeah, one more, and then remind me. I gotta go. I'm okay. doing something corporate for Harper Collins. Oh, um, it's nice. a and, and oddly enough, it has something to do with Python. I remember Cleese told me years ago that he had done some corporate office etiquettes manners rules things and uh he made a boatload of money and said i said john it's so dry did you have any fun he said i had great fun they're looking for somebody to come in and make it a little different and so harper collins asked and i said yeah i think i have a way to do that so arcane references and all that weird stuff but sticking to the points you know offices are uh, battlefields right now in many ways you really have to know your your office rules so i did one and i've got to do an hour interview to promote it at uh, noon so anyway what time is it uh it is eleven forty-four. so we'll get one last voicemail voicemail number one what are you doing today christian what are you having for lunch uh the well the kids are uh having a broccoli cheese soup because uh i can't send it to school with them so uh we're, i'm gonna have some crackers with that and uh Wait a second. Where are you? Where are you getting your Brock cheese now that soup plantation went under? Because I know that was a was <laughs> the know. that was like you were like a broker in 1929. The day that happened. I never seen you that sad. 
I, I, I asked to only be paid in soup plantation slash sweet tomatoes uh, gift cards. And uh, now I have to actually get paid in cash. So, yeah, it, uh, it was rough. It was uh, one place we could bring the kids. Yeah, it was rough. I remember you told me you were only you were down to masturbating three times a day. You were so fucked up over it. Yeah, I'm back up to seven now, though, so it's fine. <laughs> well, it's like small meals, folks. Like they yeah. tell you. <laughs> yeah. many yeah, small exactly. meals. <laughs> yeah, it's it's tapas, really. Where? Oh, <laughs> Oh, you guys are, what are you guys doing? Getting together at night and freeze tag seminar? You're <laughs> <laughs> like a mom with Nichols and May. So where, where do you go to for your cheddar and broccoli soup? I, I just I just buy it from the supermarket. I can't. Oh, okay. uh, so you're getting yeah, like Because Panera, it's not as good, you know. I've never been at a Panera. Is it good? It's all right. Yeah. It's, it's all right. Uh, what would I go in there for? A soup? I thought it was like a pizza place or something. Yeah. Uh, you could get it in a nice bread bowl. You could do, you could do the the half soup, half sandwich if you want to go that route. I like yeah. to get mm. a gigantic bread bowl of soup. And uh, I don't love the bread bowl because you know yeah. me, I'm a petulant, fiery personality, and I get back to <laughs> my true. Greek roots, and I always hurl my yep. bowl against the wall, and it just <laughs> splats there, and then slides down wow. the wall, and I feel like uh, ooh, some John Wilkes Booth flashback. <laughs> Anyway, let's uh, wind things down with voice Wait number a second. one. I kept my legs up above me this whole time. I've been talking to you, and I'm Ironside. Mark, <laughs> get the van. <laughs> Let me get some blood back into my legs. Okay, play that. Uh, play that last voicemail, Funky. Yeah. Number one. You guys make such a great team. Dennis, I've been a fan for years. Um, I love the wit. I love the vocabulary, the referencing. Uh, you're such a level-headed guy, man. It, it's it's just been uh, so much fun to to watch you over the years, and this podcast gives me so much joy. And I wish we could get Norm McDonald on more because when you all talk, it is like watching Larry Bird and Magic Johnson play. It's stellar. I laugh so hard, I feel like Mike Tyson has been punching me in the stomach for a workout. Love you guys. Keep up the great work. <laughs> well, thank you. But I, you know, I can't get hold of Norm. I wonder if he's mad at me. I'm trying to think. His voicemail was full last time you, yeah, last time you tried to call him on the show. You ever have a friend like that where you think, did I say something? Yeah. But, you know, it's tough to say something wrong to Norm. Yeah, I don't. I don't think you're capable. Except, uh, you know, maybe uh, I think you're a fine man, and I love you. That might get oh. you put into fucking, yeah, uh, <laughs> sent off into the the wilds for a yeah. while. He'll bury his cell phone in the backyard. You say something like that, but um, I, I have not talked to him. Hey, Christian, do you follow him? Has he been tweeting? Is he out there? Has he got a pulse? I do. Yeah, we had talked to, uh, the last time he came up, we talked about how he had tweeted and then deleted the conversation about how he was a little uh, weirded out by the uh, the pandemic. So he went somewhere in rural British Columbia and he lived by himself. But then as soon as it gets cold, he was going to relocate to North Carolina. North Carolina? Christ, what? what yeah. Norm's like Judd Hirsch in that movie where they ratted on the mob or, or the, the Weather Underground or something. <laughs> the f 
fuck? I need an Indiana Jones map. You know, he doesn't even land in Charlotte. He and the Asian kid just inflate the raft and fall out the cargo door. (laughs) (laughs) What was that kid's name? Short round. Oh, can you imagine now? Asian people. Nope. Fat people committing suicide if that film came out now. The kids would just be, it would be like the, uh, you know, the Buddhist monk outside the Pentagon with the, uh, you know, the, the uh, fire starter or something. Fuck. Short Round was his name. Well, who, who are you pissing off there? You're pissing off Asians, right? Short people or we people. What are they called this week? Mm-hmm. People hard to see, hard to locate yep. down there, people, or whatever the <laughs> fuck the name is this week. Uh, we folk. Yeah. Garden, garden gnomes. Yeah. Um, oops, sorry. I, yeah. Pardon me for. Um, and uh, rotund people. Short round, indeed, indeed. <laughs> Indi- <laughs> Indiana Jones and the lack of empathy. I'm sure the guilt chases Harrison down the hallways at night like a big, big paper mache ball. All right, what time is it? I'm trying now to glide into this thing so I can just, because I'm on a hot streak here. It's 10 2. Yeah, let's go a little more. You want to keep going? We can listen to more voicemails. Well, now I'm thinking if I stop, this is too brief a time to remount. Um, and plus, I waste yeah. energy. And, you know, I care for the planet. And I know people are saying, oh, no, oh, it's we good know. when you stop your car. You know, when you save. I love the fact now that cars have been installed with this thing where it stops itself down, like where I stop for a second. If I take my foot off the gas at 70 miles an hour, all of a sudden I'm with a car that's in deep sleep like Ripley on our way back from the other galaxy, and I've got to restart it at 70 miles an hour. Can I just have my car on? I I know the planet's (laughs) fucked up. Fuck, what a whiny planet. Did you ever see Earth coming... This whiny? No, I mean, I would expect this from Mars, but never from Earth. Yeah. I I pull up to a four-way stop and my car turns off. I have to restart it. And, uh, because the Earth uh, has a fever. Christ (laughs) almighty, what a pain in the ass. All right, um, I know people are saying, you only have to start by putting your foot on the gas. Maybe I don't want to. Huh? Why can't I whine if the earth whines all the time? Why can't I plead I've got a twitchy Achilles and I'd like to have it just on the gas tentatively at the bottom and roll a little before I reach up to the upper floors of the gas thing and jam down? Yeah? Think about that. And that's why Achilles couldn't drive. And when you can't drive when you're young, you've got to become a motherfucker of a fighter to get a date. That's why I kill it. This is my theory. Because, <laughs> uh, you know, he, he, they'd watch him throw a discus and skip it four times and hit a rocks three miles offshore. And the women would be like, whoa, whoa, I'm going to go out with him tonight and have him skip something three miles offshore and hit my rock. And then he said, hey, I don't have a chariot. And they go, oh, are you fucking crazy? <laughs> no, loser. All right. 
See, I should have got out when the getting was good. Let's check in with our friend Chad from Canyon Lake, voicemail number four. Love the show. Uh, watching the U.S. Open Golf Tournament today and now watching Tombstone, I think Paul Azinger and Bill Paxton are the same people. Nice. I like that reference. I can see that a little. Billy Paxton, sweet, sweet guy, man. Love Billy Paxton. Used to go out in ha- Ojai and have dinner. I can remember sitting there when the orange blossoms were happening and having some pizza with my man. Super, super sweet cat. And he used to regale me. You know what a Titanic uh, guy I am. Can imagine he was down there. Went down to the Titanic with Cameron. That blows my mind. I mean, it's so crazy. And I'm telling you, Christian, I held onto the cable and went down. I held my breath. It was a little long, but I was outside the thing, and I swam past the window. Bill shit. We ne- he never quit laughing. Every time we'd have dinner after that, I'd say, remember that time you went to the Titanic? <laughs> He's like, you, you fuckhead, you swim past the window. I picked up some of those plates and teacups that were in the silt in the debris field and started pretending I was a little tea party. Christ, they laughed their asses off. They were just shaking so hard. I remember one point Bill fell back on his back and as shaking his legs, he hit the two-foot-thick window and it creaked in there and everybody flipped out. All right, show's over. <laughs> Thanks for listening to The Dennis Miller Option, exclusively on Westwood One. Tune in to new episodes every Tuesday and Thursday on the Westwood One app, westwoodone.com, and on Apple Podcasts. And remember to rate, review, and share. Until next time, that's the show, and we are out of here. From the Westwood One Podcast Network. 